Greetings, you're listening to the Cantus Firmus Podcast. This is Cody Cook. And a recent podcast, which I did, uh, that I had titled Make Christianity Week Again, I talked about the approaches which the Church in the United States has used in interacting with the political realm. The place where I landed is that the Church should look at the state with suspicion, view its relationship to it as an uneasy one, and not seek to consolidate political power, but to emphasize the Church's spiritual power instead. In this podcast, I want to give uh, some biblical theory behind my practical application. And so the question we're dealing with here is, why should the church not seek to align itself with the state in the way that uh, it often has in uh, Europe's history, and particularly in the United States, and uh, the approach taken by the religious right? The biblical answer, in short, is that the world is in the hands of demonic forces, and God's kingdom is a spiritual one, not a physical one. In other words, there's a fundamental incompatibility between church and state. It's God's will that both exist in this age, to be sure, and both serve a divine purpose, but they are two very different kinds of things. We're called to pray for the peace of the state where we find ourselves and for its leaders, particularly uh, that they would be persuaded to leave us alone, but we're not (laughs) called to conquer it for Christ. Deuteronomy 32 provides the most basic outline of the notion that the nations are under the control of demonic forces. Verses 8 through 9 inform us that, quote, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage, end quote. The term sons of God in Old Testament usage refers to angels. In other words, God has placed spiritual forces over nations. The passage goes on to speak about God's sovereignty to judge Israel and the nations, even those nations whom God's angels have authority over. So this notion is not a challenge to God's sovereignty. God is still in control. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, we have more explicit testimony that the angels placed over the nations are corrupted beings, which mislead the people under their authority. For instance, in Psalm 82, uh, Asaph uh, describes the scene. It's one of judgment over these corrupted angels. Quote, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die, and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. End quote. The picture painted for us by scripture so far is of many nations with fallen angelic forces over them. This picture is confirmed in Daniel 10, where an angelic messenger uh, claims to have been held back from reaching Daniel by a contrary angelic figure described as the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Quote, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. End quote. These themes continue between the time of the Old Testament writings and the time of Jesus, what we call the intertestamental period. Um, And we find this in various writings. Walter Wink, uh, in the first volume of his book series, uh, Naming the Powers, he gives us a few examples. Um, And this is a quote from Wink. In third Enoch, where Semael, or Satan, is described as the angel of Rome and the head of 70 princes of the kingdoms of the world. Even here, however, Satan and the angels of the nations remain members in good standing in the heavenly court. And here he quotes from 3rd Enoch 26.12. Every day Satan is sitting, together with Semael, the prince of Rome, and with Dubael, the prince of Persia, and they write the iniquities of Israel on writing tablets, which they hand over to the seraphim. 
in order that they may present them before the Holy One, blessed be he, so that he may destroy Israel from the world. That's the end of the quotation from Third Enoch. Wink goes on, that is, so that they might be permitted, as the rod of God's judgment, to let their nations devour Israel. But the seraphim, true to their name, burn the accusations before they can reach God's throne. End quote. Wink also discusses First Enoch, particularly chapters 89 through 90, where 70 shepherds, which are used allegorically in the book of Enoch, he argues are identified with the 70 angels of the 70 nations. This identification, this is quoting from Wink, may have already been intended by First Enoch since the idea of 70 nations was as old as Genesis 10. The Hebrew Testament of Naphtali 8, whose antiquity has now been confirmed by the discovery of fragments at Qumran, tells of the time when, quote, the Lord came down from his highest heavens and brought down with him 70 ministering angels, Michael at their head. He commanded them to teach the 70 families which sprang from the loins of Noah 70 languages, end quote. The New Testament confirms the notion of demonic authority over the nations in the strongest possible terms. In Luke 4, 5 through 7, Satan himself claims to have been given authority over nations and states with the additional detail that he, the devil, gives it to whomever he pleases. Jesus does not dispute this assertion. Indeed, he affirms it in John 12, 31, 14, 30, and 16, 11, where he calls Satan the ruler of this world. John affirms this view as well in 1 John 5, 19, with his claim that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, as well as in Revelation 13, 7, where he tells us that Satan has authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. If we're willing now to accept that political power is under the authority of Satan, how are we encouraged to react to it? Are we to seek to conquer it for Christ, as uh, dominionists and theonomists, for example, argue? Not according to Jesus, who in John 18.36 told Pilate, quote, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place, end quote. Paul also affirms our thesis in Ephesians 6.12, where he informs his Christian readers that, quote, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, end quote. But what did Paul mean when he said we wrestled against rulers and authorities? This combination of words, rulers in Greek, arche, and authorities in Greek, exousia, are used together a handful of times in the New Testament. There's at least three places uh, where it's clearly used of political forces or powers. Uh, for example, Luke 12:11, Luke 20:20, 20, 20, and Titus 3:1. It's also used explicitly of negative spiritual powers, meaning not political but demonic, uh, in Ephesians 3:10, uh, where Paul writes, uh, "In order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places." End quote. But there's also a number of places, including Ephesians 6.12, where it sounds like both might be in view. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 15.24, uh, Paul writes, Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. That could be demonic power, it could be political power, but I think it seems that both are in view. Similarly, Ephesians 1.21 uh, Paul writes, He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. End quote. Also Colossians 1.16, All things were created by him, and rulers and authorities are included in that. 
Colossians 2.10, Christ is the head of all Arche and Exousia, all rulers and authorities. In Colossians 2.15, when God had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. Now, when Paul writes that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, we must understand that he probably was thinking about both physical kingdoms and their spiritual authorities. So for Paul, you can distinguish the two. There's also a sense in which they're very much tied together. Still, though, he viewed our battle against political powers that have these demonic forces behind them not as a political or military battle. He viewed it as a spiritual one, since these governments are actually under the authority of demons. Romans 12-13 through 13 elaborates on the idea of fighting spiritual, not physical battles. Uh, though Paul argues that magistrates serve a God-ordained purpose in their use of physical punishment, Christians operate at a different frequency. Romans 12, 19-21 reads, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's worth noting, and I'm going to bring this full circle, that Paul is here quoting Deuteronomy 32:35, the passage I cited earlier, which gives us the first glimpse of the angelic powers that are over the nations. In context, God is speaking about punishing the nations for their wickedness. They may be under a different God, so to speak, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is supreme over all and will judge both angels and men. Recall that in Deuteronomy 32, God described Israel as his portion in a way that the nations, under demonic authorities, were not. Similarly, the church is not under the authority of demons, but of Christ alone. We may be encouraged by Paul to, quote, pray for rulers and for all who have authority so that we can have quiet and peaceful lives full of worship and respect for God, end quote. But we are not encouraged to think of ourselves as a people living under two kingdoms. We are guests in a kingdom held by demons, and we should conduct ourselves as respectful guests. But we are also ambassadors of a different kingdom, and an ambassador always represents the nation that he was sent on behalf of. It will not do to have us declaring allegiance to a kingdom which is opposed to the one we're claiming to represent, particularly when the kingdom of God will smash the kingdoms of men, according to Daniel 7. God will punish corrupted powers in the heavens as well as rulers on earth, Isaiah 24, 21. And since even now, Christ's cross has disarmed the powers, Colossians 2.15. What then should our attitude toward the state be? As a second century bishop and martyr Ignatius of Antioch wrote in his epistle to the Romans, quote, All the ends of the earth... All the kingdoms of the world would be of no profit to me. So far as I am concerned, to die in Jesus Christ is better than to be monarch of earth's wildest bounds. He who died for us is all that I seek. He who rose again for us is my whole desire. Amen.